All right. Doing no. it again. We're doing it. It's obviously the same session. You know that. We, we broke the fourth wall here. There are no corrections for this week. We don't have to fix anything. Life is good. The Blues We've, are in the Stanley Cup. We broke the chapter <laughs> fourth wall. The Blues are in the Stanley Cup. <clears throat> and the NHL, we were morphing into a hockey broadcast, and then the NHL just put the kibots on that for a week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They definitely they definitely stalled that out. But next, next time we record... Uh, We'll we will either be very happy or very sad or somewhere in the middle. Um, <laughs> there's there's lots of possible outcomes here, but all of them are weird. So, Chapter 5, The Division of the World Amongst Capitalist Combines. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sounds ominous. Doesn't it, though? Monopolist capitalist combines, cartels, syndicates, trusts, divide among themselves, first of all, the whole internal market of a country, and impose their control more or less completely upon the industry of that country. But under capitalism, the home market is inevitably bound up with the foreign market. Capitalism long ago created a world market. As the export of capital increased and as the foreign and colonial relations, the spheres of influence of the big monopolist combines expanded, things tended naturally towards an international agreement among these combines and toward the formation of international cartels. Stop me if any of this seems familiar. Spheres of influence. Spheres of influence. They're protecting people. Yes. The, the yes. name protectorate says it all. We need to protect everyone under the U.S. sphere of influence. We do. This is a new stage of world concentration of capital and production, incomparably higher than the preceding stages. Let us see how this super monopoly develops. Guys, it's here. It's super I, monopoly. I want to play super monopoly. I would love to play super It's super monopoly. The electrical industry is the most typical of the modern technical achievements of capitalism of the end of the 19th century and the begin and of the 20th centuries. This industry has developed most in the two most advanced of the new capitalist countries, the United States and Germany. In Germany, the crisis of 1900, pause for infuriating requests for the audience. Guys, I live for context. It is the only thing in the world that, that gives me joy. I desperately desperately want to know what the fuck the crisis of 1900 is. I've tried. At this point, I'm about to book a trip to Berlin because I'm convinced it's hidden in the archives there and nowhere else. <laughs> um, I, 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 nothing. I can't find it. There's nothing. Nothing. It's it referred to a lot in this book. It's referred to a lot. You'd assume it'd be a big deal, but the, I can't find a fucking thing. I, b- context clues say there was some internal crisis Probably specifically to Germany. Some, like, depression that hit Germany specifically. But I can't find shit about it. The worst part is it ends in 1903. And so, like, it didn't even click for me when I read this book because I thought of the crisis of 1901 to 1903 in the United States from the railways. Yeah, no. It has nothing to do with that. It's definitely some completely different Hyper-specific German German economic crisis that nobody has written anything about. It's magical. It's invisible. It doesn't exist. But it does. But it's there. So if anyone knows about it, please, God, hit us up at Pod on Twitter, because I have to know or I will die, die, just die of not knowing. During the crisis, the banks, which by this time had become fairly well merged with industry, which we've talked about in the previous chapters, greatly accelerated and deepened the collapse of relatively small firms and their absorption by the large ones. Again, parallels to 2008. Mm-hmm. Consolidation during crises, capitalism consolidates. It doesn't go away, it doesn't suffer, it doesn't get back. It just forms into megazords and gets bigger and scarier and harder to take down. The banks, writes Janelle's, in refusing a helping hand to the very companies which need it, 
bring on, after a frenzied boom, the hopeless failures of the company, which are not permanently closely attached to it. So again, we have a crisis coming on. This is a time when people are going to need loans, need help from the banks, need need assistance, and that's the time banks are least likely to give it. And the companies that don't need it, the big enough companies that could weather these sorts of storms anyway, already are very integrated into the bank, so mm -hmm. why would we risk it? We know as soon as they fail that our company that we're chummy with anyway will absorb them. We win on both fronts. As a result, after 1900, concentration in Germany proceeded by leaps and bounds. Up to 1900, there have been seven or eight groups in the electrical industry. Each was formed of many companies. Altogether, there were 28, and each was supported by from 2 to 11 banks. Between 1908 and 1912, all the groups were united into two or possibly even one. The diagram below shows the process. This is the only useful diagram I've ever seen in this damn book so far. <laughs> so I'm going to try and describe it to you in audio form. Essentially, prior to 1900, there were one, two, three, four, five, six, seven electrical companies. One of them being AEG. And one of them being Siemens. And one of them being Siemens. Then two of them converted and merged together. And then, and then we have AEG and one other one on one side and Siemens and another one on the other side. Then the other two converged down into AEG by 1912 and Siemens on the other side. And then those two kind of work in tandem because they realize, hey, we're the only two. If we just split it, if we just split everything up and agree not to compete against each other, we own the market. Let's mm -hmm. stop. The famous AEG, which in Germany is the equivalent of, it, it is, it's General Electric Company is what it translates mm -hmm. to, which grew up in this way, controls 175 to 200 companies through shareholdings, which again, we talked about, the, the small, having your subsidies and you being on the boards and, and having control of multiple companies. Yeah, and just kind of hopping in there in the board of directors and making decisions, having votes, yeah. saying, hey, you know, we should do this having advisors that say, hey, if you want this loan, this is what you need your business to do, that and that and that. And we're going to get to that a little as we go. Um, and a total capital of approximately 1,500,000,000 marks. Abroad, it had 34 direct representatives, of which 12 are joint stock companies. In more than 10 countries, as early as 1904, the amount of capital invested by the German electrical industry was estimated at 233 million marks. Of this sum, 62 million were invested in Russia. Needless to say, the AEG is a huge combine. Its manufacturing companies alone number no less than 16, and these factories make the most varied articles, from cables and insulators to motor cars and aeroplanes. Again, to, to DVD players, to, 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 to yeah, no, all that. When you get, yep. the more integrated you get into the, the more parts, the more vertically integrated your company gets, the more you own every step of every process of the thing you produce, the more you control it and the more immune and insulated you are well, from anything going wrong. And think what these electric companies, you know, modernize what they do. If you think about like General Electric, AEG, Siemens, they make they make appliances, they make mm -hmm. home entertainment stuff, they make cables, they make security uh, equipment for security systems, all that stuff. Now, to be clear, and this is probably the best point where we should mention it as we're getting, yeah, we'll get there in a minute. Uh, so, but the concentration in Europe was part of a process of concentration in America, which developed in the following way. And this goes to show uh, how, how we had the same consolidation in America. And that starts with uh, the Thomas Houston Company established a firm in, in Europe. Uh, Edison Company established a company in Europe, the French Edison Company, which transferred all of its patents to AEG. Uh, and then they formed the General Electric Company in Germany. And that merged again under the AEG. So... The two great powers, the United States and Germany in this case, were formed. 
There are no other electric powers in the world completely independent from them, wrote Heining. And that is important. That's not to say that another electric company doesn't exist. But at this time, if you were in the electrical business, you were controlled in some capacity by AEG or GE. Period. Mm -hmm. End of story. The path of the electricity trust... An idea, although far from complete, of the turnover of the size of the enterprises of these two trusts can be obtained from the following figures. We're going to skip that part because it doesn't make any goddamn sense and it's not important to the argument. In 1907, the German and American trusts concluded an agreement by which they divided the world between themselves. Stop. Think about that sentence. Free competition is the thing. And and yet we're going to say no. Stop. Competition between them ceased. The American General Electric Company got the United States and Canada. The AEG got Germany, Austria, Russia, Holland, Denmark, Switzerland, Turkey, and the Balkans. Special agreements, naturally secret, were concluded regarding the penetration of subsidiary companies into new branches of industry, into new countries formerly not yet allowed. Again, when a country finally becomes useful enough that we can expropriate it and they're, they're, they're in here, We'll get to them in a minute. We'll we'll have we'll we'll come back to the table and discuss who gets that country at that time. Yeah, when it gets industrialized enough for us to start you Exporting, know, making because at this point nobody else needs our shit. But once they yeah. do, we'll figure out which of us gets it. Mm-hmm. Once once Morocco starts needing VCRs, we'll yeah. pick which one of us needs it. The two trusts were to exchange inventions and experiments. So again, they're what competition? What what what? They're they're not competing against each other. They're literally colluding to keep the entire market under their control between the two of them. Mm -hmm. Now, it's easy to understand how difficult competition has become against this trust. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit. (laughs) Uh, Which is practically worldwide and controls a capital of several billion marks. And it has branches, agencies, representatives, connections in every corner of the world. But the division of the world between two powerful trusts does not remove the possibility of redivision if the relation of force changes as a result of uneven development War, bankruptcy, etc. And again, war is a very, very commonly an excuse for we we've run out of ways to to expand our capital. The only way to do this is to to, to shuffle this deck a little bit, shuffle up and deal. Let's let's have ourselves a war. Yeah, and and you'll be amazed since we mentioned war. What the next industry that's going to be mentioned is? Yeah. Before we leave the electrical industry to jump to the oil industry, hint hint. Um, it, it, it bears it bears knowing AEG's fate. So a, we we kind of, I've kind of tried to to map some of these companies as we go along because it's just interesting, um, kind of how they ended up where they ended up and all of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. AEG uh, still ex- is, is defunct at this point. It was it was bought by Electrolux, um, if you're aware of that brand. But before that happened, they got spun off, spun off, spun off, spun off. They were acquired by another fun German company that we're all friends with, uh, Daimler-Benz. Oh, nice. AEG was entirely acquired by Daimler, and then they spun off the name AEG, very similar to the AT&T Singular merger. Mm -hmm. They took all of their useful patents and stuff, spun off the name uh, to make some consumer goods and stuff like that, and then Electrolux subsumed that later. Um, Again, bigger fish eats Again, AEG, the biggest thing at the time, gets eaten by Daimler-Benz. And then you look at, so Daimler-Benz now has AEG. What else does Daimler-Benz have? Well, their subsidiaries directly are 
Evo Bus, Daimler Trucks, Fire Freightliner Trucks, Thomas Built Buses, Western Star Trucks, Mercedes-Benz Mexico, Mitsubishi Fuso Trucks and Buses, Daimler India, Commercial Vehicles, Mercedes-Benz India, Master Motors, Manufacturing Commercial I Vehicles. feel like you're going to run out of breath before you Mercedes-AMG, Mercedes-AMG, Petronas Motorsport, Automotive Fuel Cell Cooperation, Engine Holdings, Daimler Financial Services, Mercedes-Benz Bank, Mercedes-Benz Financial, Daimler Truck Financial, Detroit Diesel, Daimler do Brasil, Daimler South Africa, Daimler Australia, Daimler Korea, Daimler South East Asia. And that's just their direct subsidiaries, not things that are held subsequent to those. Yeah, I remember, I mean, we talked about like first degree, second degree, third degree control yes. of banks and companies. And again, so this is AEG, the biggest company in the world at that point. He's now subsumed into Daimler. So assume how much else had to get subsumed into those Nazi making car fucks. Mm-hmm. Moving on to the, so now we have, now we can leave AEG in the dust. So we'll get to the other fun ones here in a bit. Uh, oil industry provides an instructive example of such a redivision, or rather a struggle for redivision. <laughs> the world oil market, wrote Jidels in 1905. I don't know how you read that last sentence and everything this book's outdated. Uh-huh. The world oil market, wrote Jidels in 1905, is even today divided in the main between two great financial groups. <clears throat> Rockefeller's Standard Oil Company mm-hmm. and the controlling interest of the Russian oil fields in Baku, Rothschild and Nobel. Hey, guys, we have some people to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously, on one hand, we have uh, John D. fucking Rockefeller, and on the other hand, we have the Rothschilds. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked before about how John D. Rockefeller, because of antitrust things, got broken up into stuff, but it's still ExxonMobil, Chevron. We did, and, and I, uh, I actually, I think uh, it's very good, because we have, uh, we have a, 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 a roadmap for what that breakup looked like. Mm. Um, if we can get to it over here... Uh, but yeah, I think it was originally like it six companies, and they uh-huh. came back. To the three. court ruled that the trust originated in an illegal monopoly. So again, this was when they, uh, when Teddy uh, whipped out the Sherman Antitrust Act and slapped Rockefeller across the face with it. Um, at the time they did this, uh, the the Standard Oil Trust held seventy percent of the U.S. market share of oil. Jeez. That was down from five years earlier when they held ninety percent. There was a point where Rockefeller genuinely wanted to own 100% and for publicity reasons didn't pursue it. He could have had a 100% monopoly on oil production, but decided that would look too bad if he had it 100%, so he left a couple companies standing that couldn't do that. Um, John D. Rockefeller, as a his entire method is like a, a, a roadmap of the worst kind of, of exploitation Successes of capitalism in the history of time. His entire business model was the roadmap to monopoly. Under he was the Walmart 1.0. He underspend, buy up everybody, take a take a fledgling business, buy them up, make them more efficient, flip them, um, constantly keep going, undersell all your competitors unless they agree to merge with you. Um, there was a quote that he had where he basically said at a certain point we got to the point where when we wanted to have a merger, where we wanted to acquire someone, we would simply walk in and show them our books and say it's your choice. Either join us voluntarily or we will bankrupt you and you'll join us then. And most people just acquiesce to the first way of doing it. Because once you hit a certain amount of centralization and consolidation under capitalism, you can't fight that. There yeah. is oh, nothing yeah. no. you can do. There is no undercut you can do that, that he can't undercut. It's a plain exertion of power. Yeah. yeah, it's a plain flex. And there was nothing in place to stop it. Nothing. Um, so, but, 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 yeah, we broke him up. 1909. 
uh, uh, we came in, and in 1911, finally, the uh, the Supreme Court said that yes, you're in you're in violation of the Antitrust Act. Um, you had to break up into 34 different companies. Holy crap! Yeah, I didn't realize there were that many. Yeah. Now these companies include, among others, uh, Continental Oil, which became Conoco, which is now Conoco Phillips. Uh, Standard of Indiana, which became Amoco, which is now part of BP. Am- Standard Amoco, Amoco, are you fucking? Kidding? It's not Amoco. It's A M O C O. Yeah, it's just Amoco. So everybody said it. I think Amoco has an extra A in it. <laughs> okay. I don't think it's Amoco. I seriously don't think it's Amoco. Like I know what Amoco looks like. I'm, I'm telling you, I don't think this is it. I might be okay. wrong. I, I'll, I'll, maybe it's Amoco, and I'm an idiot. Hey, but they're American, now pa- American oil company, Amoco. Uh, maybe I don't know. Uh, now they're part of BP. Uh, Standard of California, which became Chevron. Standard of New Jersey, which became Esso, and then later Exxon, which is now part of ExxonMobil. And Standard of New York, which became Mobil, which is now part of ExxonMobil. And Standard of Ohio, which became Sohio, which is now part of BP. Pennzoil and Chevron have remained separate companies. Hmm. Every one of those companies of Standard Oil are still around. Now, you would think that this was intended to, to break up, to make Rockefeller less dominant, less powerful. Funnily enough, Rockefeller, who rarely sold shares, held 25% of standard stock at the time of the breakup, and he and all the other shareholders received proportional shares of the 34 companies. In the aftermath, Rockefeller's control of the oil industry was somewhat reduced for the next 10 years, but the breakup was immensely profitable to him because the combined net worth of all those companies rose fivefold, which helped Rockefeller's personal wealth jump to $900 million. Jesus Christ. So you broke up the trust in order to to keep one. Per- you just made him wealthier. He still this, the function was still there. Those company and again you just saw them slowly but surely. You you blast them apart and then they just glob back together slowly but surely. And this is talking about. I mean, this is the same kind of thing we we tell social democrats they're doing too much because it's dumb. You, you're not even fighting the symptom sometimes. No. Sometimes you're just fighting in the direction of the symptom in a way that kind of feels good and it just makes things worse. Yes. In so many different ways. Um, the, another fun thing that now while, while we're on this this fuckhead, um, Rockefeller also invented what is known as the conditional grant, mm. harkening back to the fun Bill Gates Foundation, which required the recipient to root the institution in the affections of as many people as possible who, as contributors, become personally concerned and thereafter maybe be counted on to give the institution their watchful interest and cooperation. Basically, Rockefeller would give you a grant as long as you guaranteed you would run it exactly how he wanted to. Uh, which was very Northern Baptist and and weird. Um, also, he created the University of Chicago. So mm. by six uh, degrees of fucking uh, separation, John uh, D. Rockefeller is directly responsible for fucking Pinochet, in my opinion. For, yeah. And you can't convince me otherwise. Oh yeah, no, yeah. I mean, this this was like fuck off. This, he he was the proto Cokes. God damn it! Fuck you, Rockefeller. And I was going to think that Rockefeller was going to be the worst person I was going to have to read about. <laughs> Oh, God, it gets so much fucking worse, guys. I'm sorry. It always does. <laughs> and the Russian oil fields were controlled by uh, the Rothschilds. So, again, the, the Rockefeller owned all of American oil, um, never really got out of America all that much. Uh, and the, the Rothschilds were holding Russia's oil fields, which were they were producing uh, a little more profitably, but they didn't have quite as much volume at the time. Uh, the two groups are in close alliance, but for several years, five enemies have been threatening their monopoly. One. 
the exhaustion of the American wells. And it's funny that they thought we would run out of oil here. Two, the competition of the firm of Mantav of Baku, the Austrian wells, the Romanian wells, and the transoceanic oil fields, particularly in the Dutch colonies. The extremely rich fields of Samuel and Shell, also connected with British capital. Hey, huh. there's another one of them. Huh. Fucking huh. Shell. The three last groups are connected with the great German banks principally the Deutsche Bank. These banks independently and systematically developed the oil industry in Romania in order to have a foothold of their own in 1907. 185 million francs of foreign capital were invested in the Romanian oil industry, of which 74 million came from Germany. So again, Deutsche Bank recognizes, oh, because at this time, we, we always think of oil as the foundational thing. Yeah, it, it wasn't, wasn't then, no. It World wasn't. War II was the thing that turned that. It was oh, it was electricity for a long time. You wanted to control mm -hmm. a power. Um, but oil was not... Oil was only for the wealthy, for oil lamps and stuff like that. Rockefeller is is is, is known for making kerosene uh, widely available to the masses. Again, he did that by forming literal kickback deals with all the railroads and then starting mm -hmm. to own the railroads in order to get his stuff across more cheaply, but it helped the consumer. The consumer got cheap goods, so everything was okay. It is absolutely Walmart 1.0. We got cheap shit, so it's okay that he was a fucking asshole about it. Um, so, but Germany, again, doing what Germany does, recognize, hey, we need some oil. Let's get some oil, guys. Um, and so they recognize that in the... Uh, Remaining area, the Balkans area, there was there was oil fields that needed tapping that no one had gotten to yet. So they're like, we're going to get there. And they rushed. And they invested a fuck ton of capital. Again, 74 million francs from Germany. Mm -hmm. um, a struggle began, which in economic literature is fittingly called the struggle for the division of the world. On the one side, the Rockefeller Trust, wishing to conquer everything. Again, remember, the guy legitimately wanted to have 100% of the oil production in, in the United States, yeah. formed a subsidiary company right in Holland and then bought up oil wells in the Dutch Indies in order to strike at its principal enemy, the Anglo-Dutch Shell Trust. So again, the Dutch have control of these fields and they're the only ones that can play with them. There's mm -hmm. like, oh, we'll just set up a Dutch company and then buy them because now we're Dutch. Yeah. Hi, we've put on wooden shoes. I'm not Rockefeller. Also interjecting because of modern day of the same thing, that Anglo-Dutch Shell Trust, since we said it was really a thing, um, or still a thing, uh, you remember how he said Saudi Arabia was was buying the the planes that have to be refueled in the air? Yeah, and yeah. We made we made vague. We didn't say Saudi Arabia. We assumed you were all playing along at home. But yeah, we did say Saudi Arabia. Yeah, yeah. The KSA. This 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 kingdom that does like I mean everybody's got this idea like oh oh like the right wingers do like oh Sharia law and da, 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 and the place they think of that is Iran and Iran is third in the world in sex reassignment surgeries for trans people. Yeah, <laughs> you know people just see burkas and go oh my god you know terrible, but. Saudi Arabia is the place that's like throwing gay people off buildings and, and arresting people for going against the government and they're genociding Yemen right now. Uh, they're rich. They have a, a pull in the world and are explicitly a puppet for the sake of oil. Uh, the Saudi Arabian oil? Shell. Oh, God, I didn't know that and now I'm sadder. God damn it. On the other side, the Deutsche Bank and the other German banks aimed at retaining Romania for themselves and at uniting it with Russia against Rockefeller. The latter controlled far more capital, an excellent system of oil transport and distribution. The struggle had to end, and it did end in 1907 with the defeat of the Deutsche Bank, which was forced to choose between two alternatives, either liquidate its oil business and lose millions or to submit. It chose to submit and concluded a very disadvantageous agreement with the American Trust. So again... 
Rockefeller, we, we talked about the balance sheets. The Deutsche Bank, if there's one thing they can do, it's read balance sheets. Mm-hmm. They Rockefeller came up to him and said, look, you're going to race to put your people there. I already have the infrastructure. I already know how to do this. And I have more money than you. You want to play this game? Let's go. Uh, and Deutsche Bank said, fine, we'll play. We'll, 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 we'll concede to whatever terms you want. Just let us not lose everything here. Then the comedy of oil began. One of the German finance kings, von Gwimmer, a director of the Deutsche Bank, began through his private secretary, Strauss, a campaign for a state oil monopoly. The gigantic machine of the big German bank and all its connections were set in motion. The press bubbled over with patriotic indignation against the yolk of the American trust. That one was actually pretty dead on. Mm -hmm. And on March 15th, 1911, the Reichstag, by an almost unanimous vote, adopted a motion asking the government to introduce a bill for the establishment of an oil monopoly. The government seized upon this popular idea and the game of the Deutsche Bank, which hoped to deceive its American partner and improve its business by a state monopoly it appeared to have been one. So again, Deutsche Bank recognized they could not, on their face, compete with Rockefeller. Rockefeller had them dead to rights. So they convinced Germany to form a state oil, nationalized oil, that they would then finance that could compete with Rockefeller. Mm-hmm. Because that would get around their deal with Rockefeller. Now, if you don't think Rockefeller can see through that, but fine. The German oil magnate saw visions of wonderful profits, which would have been not less than those of the great Russian sugar refiners. But first, the great German banks quarreled amongst themselves over the division of the spoils. The Discanto Gestellstaff exposed the covetous aims of the Deutsche Bank. Secondly, the government took fright at the prospect of a struggle with Rockefeller. So again, they didn't realize that Deutsche Bank was manipulating them into a fight with Rockefeller. And then when he turned around and said, uh, the fuck you doing now? They're like, oh, fuck no. Uh-uh, no, he's terrifying looking. Jesus, no. Uh, it was doubtful whether Germany could be sure of obtaining oil from other sources. The Romanian output was small. Thirdly, just at that time, the 1913 credits of a billion marks were voted for Germany's war preparations. The project of the oil monopoly was postponed. The Rockefeller Trust came out of the struggle for the time being victorious. Again, war trumps everything. Mm-hmm. The Berlin Magazine, Die Bank, da 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 I need a drop for Die Bank. We really need to get one in. God, Die Bank. Said in this connection that Germany could only fight the oil trust by establishing an electricity monopoly and by converting water power into cheap electricity. But, the author added, the power monopoly will come when the producers need it. That is to say, when the next great failure in the electrical industry is impending, and what the, when the most powerful, expensive electric stations, which are now being put up at great cost everywhere by private electric concerns, which obtain partial monopolies from towns, from the state, etc., can no longer work at a profit. Water power will then have to be used. But this cannot be converted into cheap electricity at state expense. It will have to be handed over to a private monopoly controlled by the state. Hey, something the Nazis were fans of. Mm -hmm. Because of the immense compensation and damages that would have to be paid to private industry. So it was with the nitrate monopoly. So it is with the oil monopoly. So it is with the petroleum monopoly. So it will be with the electric power monopoly. It is time our state socialists, who allow themselves to be blinded by beautiful principles, understood once and for all that in Germany... Monopolies have never pursued the aim, nor have they had the result of benefiting the consumer or of handing over to the state a part of the entrepreneur's profits. They have served only to sanitate, at the expense of the state, private industries which were on the verge of bankruptcy. That's the German economist lecturing social democrats that, hey, dumbasses, this doesn't benefit people. 
Such are the valuable admissions which the German bourgeois economists are forced to make. We see plainly here how private monopolies and state monopolies are bound together in the age of finance capital, how both are but separate links in the imperialist struggle between the big monopolists for division of the world. We're going to skip the next section because it's on mercantile shipping and I don't really care. Um... It, it, it's an outdated example that just hammers home the same thing. Extremely instructive also is the story of the creation of the International Rail Cartel. The first attempt of the British, Belgium, and German rail manufacturers to create such a cartel was made as early as 1884, at the time of a severe industrial depression. The manufacturers agreed not to compete with one another for the internal markets of the countries involved, and they divided the foreign markets in the following quotas. Great Britain got 66%, Germany got 27%, Belgium got 17%. India was reserved entirely for Great Britain. They did such a great job there. Oh, yeah. Uh, joint war was declared against a British firm, which remained outside the cartel. The cost of this economic war was met by a percentage levy on all sales. But in 1886, the cartel collapsed when two British firms retired from it. It is characteristic that the agreement could not be achieved in this period of industrial prosperity, which followed. When everything's going great, they don't have a reason to cooperate with each other. When things are bountiful, when it's going everywhere, you try and push other people out. You don't you don't come together to make sure that you survive and everyone else fails. At the beginning of 1904, the German Steel Syndicate was formed. In, in November 1904, the International Rail Cartel was revived with the... Because, again, this is post that uh, crisis of 1900 that mm -hmm. we all don't know existed, that really existed. Um, was revived with the following quotas for foreign trade. Great Britain got 53.5%, Germany got 28.83%, Belgium got 17.67%, and France came in later with 4.8%, 5.8%, and 6.4% in the first, second, and third years, respectively. In excess of the 100% limit, i.e. when the total was 104.8%, in 1905, the United States Steel Corporation entered the cartel, then Austria, then Spain. At the present time, wrote Vogelstein in 1910, the partition of the world is completed, and the big consumers, primarily the state railways, since the world has been parceled out without consideration for their interests, can now dwell like the poets in the Palace of Jupiter. I'm sure that's a great reference, but I don't fucking know what it means. <laughs> Oh God! So we we we've spoke a little bit about the the U.S. about the steel cartel coming in. We spoke a little bit about the uh, uh, railroad cartel coming mm -hmm. in, which means we are forced now against my will and all the things that I believe are just in the world to talk about J.P. Morgan. Um, J.P. Morgan is a fucking asshole. Um, that part really shouldn't go too hard without saying, um, he was a banker. He, that was his, that was his whole thing. He was a financier, pure and simple. He was not Rockefeller was known for running oil, an oil company. And you can argue about how good of a businessman he was at that, whatever. Uh, Carnegie built a steel empire, yada, yada, whatever. Vanderbilt made trains and shipping, yada, yada. JP Morgan was a banker period. Um, and J.P. Morgan uh, was most known for being good at consolidations and restructurings. Ooh, he That was his specialty. That was what he was the best at. Um, but his ascent to power, when he rose up, was on the railroads. 
Um, the large because at the time they were the largest business enterprise in America. So you're a banker. What do you want to get in on? Whatever the biggest thing is, I'm getting it on railroads. Uh, he got control of the Alabany and Susquehanna Railroad from Jay Gould and Jim Fisk in 1869, and then he led the syndicate that broke government financing privileges to Jay Cook and soon became deeply involved in financing a railroad empire by reorganization and consolidation in all parts of the United States. He slowly but surely did exactly what Standard Oil did, only for railroads. But again, he's doing it simply as a financier. Simply by leveraging finance capital over people, he was able to consolidate these industries down. Um... He raised large sums in Europe, but instead of handling the funds, he just helped the railroads reorganize and achieve greater efficiencies. Uh, he fought against speculators interested in speculative profits and built a vision of an integrated transportation system. Morgan successfully marketed a large part of Vanderbilt's New York Central Holdings in 1883, and in 1885, he reorganized the New York West Shore and Buffalo Railroads, leasing into the New York Central Station. Uh, he continues to kind of consolidate railroads all across the country until the Panic of 1907. Because, again, we didn't have depressions back then. We had panics. Panics. And this was a major banking panic that almost, almost crippled the U.S. economy. Uh, right before this, uh, it goes without saying, we, we associate U.S. Steel uh, with uh, Carnegie, Andrew Carnegie, Bill mm -hmm. U.S. Steel. Uh, interestingly enough, Morgan just bought it from him. Wow. J.P. Morgan owned U.S. Steel. Oh. He just simply bought it. <laughs> like, he, he just owned U.S. Steel. Um, so at the time that we're talking about the steel cartel jumping in, uh, 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 J.P. Morgan is running that show. Hmm. Um, uh, J.P. Morgan, U.S. Steel also was a little contentious because it was uh, non-union. And so, uh, you know, you had some minor issues there. So uh, led by Charles Schwab, another guy you should be familiar with at this point. <laughs> Just uh, such a list of great people. Fucking hell. They wanted to keep it non-union, so they used aggressive tactics to identify and root out nah, pro-union troublemakers. Uh, and the lawyers and bankers who had organized the merger of U.S. Steel at the time... Is this the Pinkertons? Oh, it's not the Pinkertons, but I wish it was the Pinkertons. Oh. We're not going to talk about the Colorado uh, uh, Colorado strike, the coal strike okay. that led to the, the rioting and all of that. There's a dollop that does a very, very good deep dive on that, and it's really not the part of this. But I just I, I have to talk about J.P. Morgan for a second, and sure. these are the parts that are, are relevant. Again, he had a heavy hand in that uh, 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 coal crisis. Heavy hand. But a panic about 1907. Um, a lot of New York banks were going to go bankrupt. There was no mechanism to rec rescue them. There was no bailout. There was no too big to fail. They were just going to collapse. Um, what 2008 would have been if we hadn't bailed everybody out. Um, and the Treasury Secretary is freaking the fuck out. Uh, he earmarks $35 million of federal money to deposit into New York banks. So he's basically just trying to write a giant check to these banks to keep them afloat. Because everyone's calling in these speculative bust buys that fucking, we know, just ruin the economy. Um, and then J.P. Morgan steps in with his big giant monopoly dick. Um, and he had the meet, he met with all the leading financiers in his mansion and he forced them to devise a plan. So he basically forced all these other banks to say, look, you're going to lend to them. You're going to lend to them. You're going to lend to them. We're all going to get money from somewhere overseas and we're going to stabilize this so that none of you go under, which is the ostensibly a good thing because it kept a bunch of banks from collapsing. <laughs> Unless you but, realize banks are terrible and you're rotting and from what? The but all it did was fucking exactly. It just per, it kept the whole thing going, and it was one fucking guy who could do it. It was one dude who had enough capital to say, "You're all doing this, and this is how you're doing it." 
It's in fucking saying. It's out That's fucking outrageous how much money this man had. No, again, when he died, he didn't have as much money, pure profit, as Rockefeller. And then Rockefeller said, and to think he wasn't even a rich man. He had like something like $519 million or something like Jesus that back then. Christ. Yeah, it was obscene. Um, but it was it was wild. And, and and just insane how much of it was was going on and how much he leveraged to do it. This led to the creation of the Federal Reserve System. This whole crisis is what created the Federal Reserve System. Um, so interesting things things from 1890 to 1913. There were 42 major corporations that were organized or underwritten by J.P. Morgan, either in part. Again, we're talking about that sub yeah. that that downtrodden here are the things that J.P. Morgan was in control of in one capacity or another. American Bridge Company, American Tele Telephone and Telegraph, also known as AT&T, yeah, hey, Associated huh. Merchants, Atlas Cement Company, Boomer Coal and Coke, Federal Steel, General Electric, Hartford Carpet, Inspired Inspiration Consolidated Copper, International Harvester, International Mercantile Marine, J.I. Case Threshing Machines, Case is still a major company, National Tube, United Dry Goods, United U.S. Steel, Atchison, Topeka, Santa Fe Railroad, Atlantic Coast Railroad, Central Georgia Railway, Chesapeake and Ohio Railway, the B&O Railroad, all the other Monopoly Railroads, the Chicago Great Western Railroad, a bunch of other fucking railroads, St. Louis, San Francisco Railroad, and then some more. Um, everything. He had everything. Did you say International Harvester? Yeah. Like the fucking tractors? Uh-huh. Jesus Christ. JP had them. JP had them. And then he merged with Chase Bank, the bank formed by Rockefeller. The, those, nice. they've just never stopped and nothing ever. And again, antitrust never broke them up. He just had, because he wasn't the guy. He didn't have, he wasn't running the business. He was just the money behind the business. But you know, that is almost more control over the system. The things he could get away with, the things he could, he could manipulate. He had hands in every part of the economy. He is a nightmare. Also, Parker Brothers actively admitted that Mr. Monopoly Man is based off of him. So that fucking guy that walks around with his hands out in his pockets and goes to jail every once in a while is fucking J.P. Morgan. And you can hate him forever in perpetuity. Fuck J.P. Morgan. Fuck that. God, fuck, fuck J.P. Morgan so hard. Ah! Alright, we've partitioned the world. Fuck J.P. Morgan. Altogether, Leafman, in 1897, counted about 40 international cartels in which Germany had a share. In 1910, there were 100. So that, that escalated quickly, they say. Mm -hmm. Certain bourgeois writers, with whom K. Kautsky has completely abandoned the Marxian position he held, for example, in 1909, has now associated with himself, expressed the opinion that international cartels are the most striking expressions of the internationalization of capital, and that they therefore give the hope of peace among nations under capitalism. Now, if you've heard us talking for this last two episodes, you know literally it is the exact fucking opposite. Oh, yeah. This concept that, oh, well, if we're all wound up internationally together, we're all bound together, well, no one will want to fight one another. You fucking... And Mar Lenin's just going to say it better, so I'll let him go. Theoretically, this opinion is absurd, while in practice it is a sophism and a dishonest defense of the worst opportunism. Thank you, Lenin. International cartels show to what point capitalist monopolies have developed, and they reveal the object of the struggle between the various capitalist groups. This last circumstance is the most important. It alone shows us the, his 
historico-economic significance of events for the forms of the struggle may and do vary according with varying relatively particular and transitory causes. But the essence of the struggle, its class content, cannot change while classes exist. Mm -hmm. It is easy to understand, for example, that this is in the interest of the German bourgeoisie, whose theoretical arguments have now been adopted by Kautsky. We will deal with this later. He wrote a whole book. He, he dealt with it later. He dealt with it thoroughly. Go back to the renegade Kautsky. To obscure the content of the contemporary economic struggle, the division of the world, and to emphasize one or another form of the struggle. Again, yelling about the symptom adjacent to the symptom. Mm -hmm. Kautsky makes the same mistake. The capitalists divide the world not out of malice, but because the degree of concentration which has been reached forces them to adopt this method in order to get profits. And they divide it in proportion to capital, in proportion to strength, because there cannot be any other system of division under the system of commodity production and capitalism. I need to earmark something, too. Please. Uh, the capitalists divide the world not out of malice, but the degree of concentration which has been reached forces them to adopt this method in order to get profits. They have to divide it up to get profits. This is not, again, that competition is gone, completely gone. Doesn't exist. But also, kind of a fun thing, politics. Uh, the two-party system opposes each other, not out of malice or ideological disagreement. No. But to get you going through this election sham. Yeah. Because it's what allows them to stay in power. And again, this is the th this it's is how they get power. It's how they get they get political support. Capitalists and many of them probably don't even do it consciously. Again, you know, this is like the newscasters that think they're they're doing the right thing when they're not stepping on the Mark, toes. Marx talked about this in Capital that the capitalist does this not because he's trying to be malicious, but because it is the only way to run a business under capitalism. Yeah, they're just trying to do what they think they need to do or what they think is right or whatever. And, and, and they have to do it. So, I mean, this really, really drives in. And this, it's all monopoly bullshit. This chapter has... It's not even what they think they know. If you do not... Capitalism. If you work in a company, any company, have you ever been in that company for a period of time and they go, hey, guys, uh, we're going to stand pat this year. We are not interested in growing. Yeah. We would not want... We do not want to get... 10 units. We're the right size. We don't want to be 10 widgets higher than we were last year. Every year, year over year, regardless, there will be, your your company will set go, growth goals. Mm -hmm. Because it has to. Because if it stops, it's a shark. If they stop swimming for one fucking second, a bigger shark will come and eat them, and then a sharknado of sharks will come, and then sharknado's all the way down. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 that's right, too, you know? I mean, they're not even... It's well, not like they're... It's right about the Sharknados? Yeah. All right. No, yeah, I didn't think I was there on that one, but all right. But the, the uh, you know, the fact of the matter is, is it's not even that they, they're greedy so they won't stop. No. Right? This isn't miserly. No, this is self-defense. If Yeah, if they don't grow, like I say, you know, if you're not growing, you're shrinking. If you're not going forward, you're going backwards. They're not wrong. You no. can't stay still in capitalism. Someone will come and undercut you and take shit right from out. From John under you. D. Rockefeller will show up at your door with his big book of money and say, give it to me or I'll take it. That's right. This this is a big race. It's a big race subdivided in little races. And every little race, there's only one winner. Yeah. You can't just say, I'm sitting this race out. You're disqualified, buddy. You're fucking gone. Capitalism is a zero-sum game. <laughs> Period. Mm. End of story. Yes. Ugh. Uh, ba -da -ba -ba. The capitalists divide the world not out of malice. We already talked about that, so we're not going to talk about it again. But strength varies with the degree of economic and political development. In order to understand what 
takes place, it is necessary to know what questions are settled by this change of forces. The question as to whether or not these changes are purely economic or non-economic, e.g. military, is a secondary one, which does not in the least affect the fundamental view on the latest epoch of capitalism. To substitute for the question of the content of the struggle and agreements between capitalist combines, the question of the form of these struggles and agreements, today peaceful, tomorrow warlike, the next day peaceful again, is to defend into is to descend into sophistry, and that's exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. Is trying to pretend that this is all oh well, it's because we're at war. Oh, it's because we're in competition. Oh, it's good. No, it's because we're in capitalism, and this is how capitalism will go. It, if if we have to get a war, if we can't do it through the normal economic channels, and we're forced to go into wars to try and reorganize so that one company, because that's going to be what, you're going to get pushed against a wall. And your only means of survival is going to be, well, we're either going to die or we're going to fight a war and try and expand. Let's see what we got here. Yeah. And and that's what it breaks down to. Uh, the epoch of modern capitalism shows us that certain relationships are established between capitalist alliances based on the economic partition of the world. While parallel to this fact and in connection with it, certain relations are established between political alliances, between states, on the basis of the territorial division of the world, of the struggle for colonies, of the struggle for economic territory. Hey, guys. It's another transition statement. That's right. And, and we will pick that up. We will not up. muddy that transition statement up at all because next week, coming up coming up in Chapter 6, we're going to talk about some dividing amongst the great powers. Mm-hmm. And that, I'm sure, will not infuriate me to no end. <laughs> I am comforted in knowing that there will be no rage-inducing, so bad racial just, racist justifications for why India got famine. <laughs> in the meantime... See you next week. Bye. Bye.